Hello, and welcome to another edition of our Take 15 webcast series. I'm Rob Gowan, Director of Member Products here at CFA Institute, and joining me today is Joel Stern, Chairman and CEO of Stern Stewart Company, an international management consulting firm. Joel is the pioneer of economic value added, also known as EVA, which is a very important metric for fundamental equity analysts and portfolio managers. Joel, would you mind giving us a brief overview of economic value added, and then we can take that model and talk about today's equity markets. The EVA framework takes a look at balance sheets, income statements, and the concept of risk, all at the same time. It looks at the return on net assets. It looks at the cost of capital in the firm. That's the risk measure. And it looks at growth in capital as well. In other words, EVA is equal to net assets multiplied by the spread between the rate of return on net assets and the so-called weighted average cost of capital. But if you multiply out the terms, you get actual operating income minus minimum or required operating income. Okay? What's so special about it? Well, the model that preceded EVA, the one I developed back in the early 70s, was called the free cash flow model. And free cash flow is simply net operating profits, profits from operations again, after tax, no PAT we would call it, minus all net new investment in working capital and plant. What's interesting about that model, incidentally, is that CEOs of companies often brag that they have a positive free cash flow. My condolences. Why? The objective is to actually have a negative free cash flow. Why? You want to invest lots and lots of money in worthwhile projects where their net present values are positive, where the return on net assets exceed the cost of capital over the life of the project. The more such projects you invest in, the greater is the premium of market value over book value or net asset value, call it what you will. That's an important thing. In other words, free cash flow. But the problem with free cash flow was that you couldn't measure performance year by year. Because, as I just said, the best free cash flow is a negative free cash flow. But I got bad news. Negative free cash flow is negative if you're doing poorly too. In other words, if you don't have any profits at all and you're investing money, I got news. Your free cash flow will be negative. So that's not so good. I, I, in other words, we couldn't use a measure of free cash flow that we all agree, if you take the present value of the future free cash flows, it's the enterprise value. But we couldn't use year-on-year -year changes in free cash flow to design incentive contracts for management. What to do? I remember saying to Merton Miller, my teacher, Mert, what should we do? He said, I don't know. <laughs> And it took years. It really took years. It didn't happen until the late 80s that we finally realized that EVA did the good work that we needed. If you take the present value of the future free cash flows, you get the enterprise value. If you take the present value of the future EVAs, you don't get the enterprise value. You get the premium over book value. So if you take book value plus the present value of the future EVAs, then you have the value. Here's the problem. This is not your question, but I'm just going to see if I can just throw this at you. The accountants have made a complete mess up of this. You see, when accountants were beginning, 
long, long, long time ago, they developed their framework. It was done as a scoring system for lenders. Shareholders weren't even present. Lenders wanted to figure out if borrowers could repay the loans. So what did the lenders do? They didn't want to include any intangible assets on the balance sheet. Why? If the company fails, it can't be used to repay the loans. So all investments in intangible assets for years and years and years was simply expensed on the profit and loss statement in the year in which you incurred the expense. So research and development, building long-term brand value, training and developing people, it's all immediately expensed. So it's no accident that the accountant's book value is down here and market value is all the way up here. In fact, since the beginning of middle of, say, the middle of the 1970s, when they uh, decided to definitely expense all R&D, the high-tech companies' market values have been going like this, and their book values have been going up a little bit. So the ratio of market to book value looks crazy. But that's not because the market's crazy. It's because the accounting framework was wrong. So what did I do? Under EVA, you have to place back on the balance sheet all of those intangible assets that have been arbitrarily expensed. So we have to put back R&D. We have to write R&D off over its expected economic use for life. And firms like Coca-Cola have to take long-term brand value out of current advertising and, 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 and advertising and promotion expenditures and things like that. Okay. Now, inside the firm, if you're doing strategic planning, it's no problem. The company's planners and so forth, they can sit around the table and debate how long is this and how long is this, how long is this. When we implemented EVA at Siemens back in 1997, we had the heads of all of the 17 operating units of the firm sitting there. They were on what we called the steering committee. They answered the tough questions for us. So they had their uh, group uh, implementing from their side, and Stern Stewart's team was helping them do the implementation. But we had to ask big questions. For example, we would say to the guy who was doing the telephones, for example, the you know, cell phones, uh, what do you think is the economic useful life of cell phones? And there was a big debate in the room. It went on for maybe 30 minutes. And finally, the CFO said, okay, let's use the following number. By the way, what was fascinating is that we got all finished. The new book value was what I call the economic book value of the company. So it's... The, you take the economic book value plus the present value of the future EVAs, and you've got the current market value. Is there evidence suggesting that companies that generate a lot of positive EVA are rewarded with higher multiples in the market? There's a problem here. One of my competitors, who I have a good deal of respect for, believe it or not, in fact, one of the founders was my student when I taught at UCAL Berkeley, but uh, they have this vision that the goal is to have a maximum spread between return on net assets and the cost of capital. That's not right. Believe it or not. What is right is you want to take on all projects whose rates of return exceed the cost of capital. To put it another way, let's assume your best projects are earning 30% after tax. And say your next best projects are, say, 22% after tax. Should we not take on the 22% projects? Because if we do, it'll lower the average rate of return on capital. As long as that 22 is higher than the cost of capital, hey, don't stand there. Just do it, okay? Do it. Take on all those projects. Incidentally, getting back to the EVA again for a second, the major reason why EVA was better than free cash flow was that we could write incentive contracts around improvements in EVA. In other words, if the incentive contract was based on improvements in EVA, it changed everybody's behavior. 
because nobody would take on projects where they were expected to earn less than the cost of capital. Now, if, if you were in the automobile business, talk to the people at GM and Chrysler and Ford, what do they always talk about? Market share, market share, market share. What does that mean? That means it sounds like they're willing to take on projects. Who cares what the cost of capital is? And look what they wind up doing as a result, okay? It's very interesting. When I've talked to the Japanese manufacturers, you wouldn't believe it. Somebody says, oh, they don't have MBAs, they don't have CFAs, nothing like this. I got news. They have their common sense. And believe it or not, if you take what they say and put it into financial terms, they're essentially taking on what we call superior returning projects. Let's talk about today's economic climate. What is happening to the cost of capital? Absolutely nothing. In fact, we all know that interest rates have been so low on a relative basis historically. In fact, even real interest rates were very, very low until very recently. So that it's not been uh, on the cost of capital, in my view. In other words, uh, firms that sell at low price-to-earnings ratios or market-to-book ratios that are highly cyclical, even during good times, they have a higher than average cost of capital, but that's already built in during the good times. When you have bad times, it doesn't necessarily mean that the cost of capital is going up. In other words, what's really happening is that their economic prospects in the future are deteriorating big time. Now, in order to get a handle on that, I have to now say something very nice about both Franco Modigliani and Merton Miller. Mert was my teacher, as he was the teacher of Eugene Fama and Michael Jensen and Myron Scholes and Richard Roll. And in fact, all of us were in the same class together. And what's interesting about their framework is actually seen more easily and clearly in their second major paper, not the first one on cost of capital. The second paper they did was on dividend policy. The title is actually called Dividend Policy, Growth and the Valuation of Shares. Incidentally, as you know, I teach at seven graduate schools around the world, and my students, they read that dividend policy paper from one cover to the other. They know everything, including footnote 15. And that's what we're going to talk about now. In footnote 15, they take a perpetual valuation model and make it into a finite growth model. It's very important. That finite growth model suggests that the value of the firm, as we said before, present value of future free cash flows, is actually broken down into three distinct components. One is the capitalized value of currently generated returns. In other words, from current assets currently held. So it's the operating profits are annuitized at the cost of capital. That's stage one. So it essentially tells you how efficient the company is right now. The second component is the tax shield from debt financing. Okay? The third element is, this is the important one, this is the big one. This is what I really, when I saw this, I said, holy cow. I said, wowee, can you believe this? What they showed was the present value of the firm's future strategic plans. And what does that turn out to be in my framework? EVA growth. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? In other words, it's determined by the letter I, new investment, the spread you talked about before between the return on net assets and the cost of capital. But there's a, fi a final term there, capital T. That's the length of time in years for which the firm is expected to generate positive net present value. In other words, we'll call it 
uh, Mike Mobison, who's uh, like Mason, really good guy, and also teaches with me at Columbia Business School. Uh, Mike calls that the comparative advantage period. He is correct. That's what it means. By comparative advantage, what we mean is the firm is expected to find projects that have positive NPV for that length of time. Okay, and that's the time for which our EVA growth is expected to continue as well. Now, the question is, what's been happening now? You know, what, what's going on in the world? Well, when we go into an economic recession, there are essentially two things that happen. EVA growth goes negative. That is, the so-called expected improvement in EVA actually becomes expected decline. The question is, for how long is that expected to continue? The longer that continues, the greater is the subtraction from today's value. Now, the question is not easily answered. You know, if you asked me, are we going to have a recession, and you asked me that question a year ago, I'd say, well, it's possible we won't. You know, it looks like we're close. You're going to skim the surface there, but maybe no recession. If you asked me that, say, four or five months ago, I'd say, yes, it looks like we're going to have a modest recession. If you asked me the same question a month and a half ago, as, say, John McCain did uh, probably in early September, just after the Republican convention, he was ahead in the polls by something like eight points. He'd say, wow, look at this. But unfortunately, the economy went straight down almost the day on which Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. The day Lehman Brothers went goodbye, consumers stopped spending, period. It worried them sick. In other words, if Milton, sorry, if Milton Friedman were alive today, or Alan Meltzer still is, thank goodness, if they took a look at this, they'd say, hey, what's going on here? The money supply is growing like crazy. Milton never said that a growing money supply could stop a recession from taking place. He did say it's likely to reduce its severity, but it's almost certain that you can't stop it. In this particular case, the recession has been caused not by too slow a growth rate in the money supply, which historically has been, had been Milton's you know, big story. No, this is like the 1987 meltdown on the stock market. We all remember the 500-point drop in 87, but we don't often remember the 500-point drop that preceded the second 500-point drop. It actually dropped 1,000 points on 2,700, which is more than 33%. That's a lot of drop. The market now is down over 40%. What's the market telling us? Well, back in 87, nothing happened. I must tell you how surprised I was. I couldn't believe it. I thought to myself, I'd better go back to my economics textbooks and reread everything again. Maybe I, I, I don't understand what's going on. It was a complete, unexpected outcome. Not true this time. This time, it's going to be quite serious. What's happened is the time horizon for comparative advantage has essentially been eliminated from the valuation calculation. So if you believe that the recession is going to be relatively short and relatively modest in impact, this could be the greatest buying opportunity of your lifetime. I personally am not convinced. I think we're going to have a recession that could last us even 18 to 24 months. And if that happens, obviously, the right buying time is going to be maybe a year from now. So how do we value companies that have a tough time raising debt capital or even going to the equity markets to raise capital? We have a lesson to learn from our Japanese friends. The Japanese came up with a quite brilliant idea. The South Africans have another brilliant idea, and they both came up with it for the same reason. 
At the time, their equity markets were not very well developed, and they wanted equity capital. So they decided, in the Japanese case, to issue shares at a discount to the current stock price. Yes, but it would be on a rights-offering basis, which meant the existing shareholder base has the right of first refusal. Okay? Now, let's assume the shares are at 30, and you want to raise a million, uh, you want to raise 30 million. So, in, more traditionally, you would sell a million shares at 30, and then you'll have the 30 million. Under my approach, the Japanese approach I'm recommending, you'd have to sell a million and a half shares at 20. But you, as an owner, would have a right that would then be selling in the marketplace for $10, the difference between the 20 and the 30. Why do we do it that way? Because you cannot afford to let the right expire. You will either use the right to buy the shares, or you will sell the right to somebody else to buy the shares. And the value of that right will tell you what the so-called true value is of this transaction. So that's one way to do it. In other words, you are definitely going to raise the equity capital because either your existing shareholders will do it or they will pass the baton to somebody else. Of course, they're not going to let that right expire. If they do, they're out 10 bucks. Okay? That's a very important thing. The second way to do it is the way that the South Africans did it. They have a compulsory conversion feature in convertible debentures. What they did was they offered convertible debentures for sale, but the conversion was a for sure act, say, three, four, five years from now. It automatically became common equity. In the interim, interest in income was earned by the, by the holder. That way, it was essentially like having a new issue of, of equity, but it was going into the hands of lenders who wanted to become equity investors in the company. Okay? It's a compulsory convertible debenture, and that's another way to raise the equity. So how do we reconcile management's capital allocation decisions in an environment for which there may not be a good precedent? Well, no precedent would mean that's an extreme position to take, but it's, it's a, it's a, you're right. We're in a period that is quite unusual, and this is the time when if managements do the right thing by managing their capital properly and incentivizing themselves properly and driving these incentive ideas down through the organization, in my view, those companies that put that type of program in place now and over the next year are going to reap unbelievable benefits on the other side of this economic calamity. So just to summarize, the stock market is really reflecting extreme uncertainty. So we need to focus on managers that are good capital allocators versus ones that are simply trying to get more market share. Yes, and you can find that out by asking the management, tell me about your incentive con compensation contract. I'd like to know how your variable pay is earned. If it's earned based on EBIT or EBIT growth, or it's based on sales growth, then we're in trouble. There's no return on capital in that calculation. Okay? Uh, again, as I say, the great advantage of it being based on improvements in EVA is you have RONA, the return on net assets, you've got the cost of capital, and you have growth in new investment. You have all three of those things all in one, in one fell swoop. Uh, look, there are companies, giant-sized companies, I don't want to mention their names, but where I saw the CEO's contract is based only on improvements in EBIT. That means that a return on investment of greater than zero gives him a bonus. That doesn't sound like a too good an idea to me. No. 
If I were on that board of directors, he wouldn't have gotten that contract. Are there industries that have better successes of generating positive EVA than others? I think that I would like to quote somebody who used to be a client of mine a long time ago. He's now retired. I think he's on the board of Morgan Stanley. His name is Charles H. Knight, Chuck Knight. He ran Emerson Electric for a long time, say 25 to 30 years. He was fabulous. He didn't know EVA. He didn't know free cash flow. He had a brain that figured it out all for himself. He reminds me of Warren Buffett in the same sense. If you read what Warren Buffett has had to say on the whole subject of measurement of performance and incentives and so on, I got news. There's no difference between what he's saying and my EVA system. It's essentially the same. The same was true of Emerson Electric. But Chuck Knight and I, one time, we were sitting just having a chat about whatever. And I said to him, on what basis do you think you can generate superior returns above the cost of capital? He said there are only two ways to do it. You have to do something that's so distinctive and so proprietary that you can charge a premium price and hold on to that premium for an extensive period of time. There are very few companies that have done that. Johnson & Johnson is one, Coca-Cola is another, 3M Company is another, and so on. They are just amazing. Decades, decades. Can you imagine Coca-Cola? What is that stuff anyway? And yet they're able to earn superior returns. The second way, he said, is to be the low-cost producer. You have to be the low-cost producer. And if you are, no matter almost what product you manufacture, you'll be able to earn returns above the cost of capital. Well, Joel, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts during this uh, time of tremendous economic uncertainty. And thank you for watching this webcast. For more webcasts like it, please visit cfawebcasts.org. Copyright 2008, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.